Welcome to Beyond the Launch, where we engage with experienced entrepreneurs and business leaders to get a look into their lives and entrepreneurial journeys. I'm Michael Goldberg, Executive Director of the Veal Institute for Entrepreneurship at Case Western Reserve University. Thanks for making the time. We hope you enjoy the conversation. I am going to pass it over to Sonia. One of the um, awesome things about this series um, is not only the chance to highlight um, the great things that our entrepreneurs like Hallie have done since graduation, is also uh, to have our great students and student entrepreneurs. So Sonia uh, Velu is a student and student entrepreneur and um, is going to moderate the session. So she will sort of lead the beginning part of the discussion and then we'll, um, we'll open it up to, to questions. When we do get to your question, either on Facebook Live or here, please do introduce yourself and if you're a student or a community member and what your major is, just so Sally Halley and the people on the, on, the, um, on the call can get a sense of who you are. So with that, over to you, Sonia. Hi, um, so just a little more background on me. Um, he's, like you he said, I'm Sonia. I'm a biomedical engineering student here at Case. I'm a second year. Um, Hallie, it's great to have you. Um, thank you for doing this call. Basically, we're just going to, I'll kind of ask you the first couple questions and then we'll go to the audience for questions. Um, but if you can introduce yourself, just a little bit about you, um, your experience, how you've kind of grown through your career, um, that'd be great. Yeah, great. Can everybody hear me? We can. Yeah, great. Um, so yeah, I'm a 2006 Case alum. I was in Weatherhead, um, studied banking and finance concentration management. Um, had a lot of engineering, including a BME um, roommate. So I know that that major is way more difficult than what I went through. Um, but loved my time at Case. And um, when I graduated, um, I, I'm from Cleveland originally, so when I graduated, I just wanted to get as far away as possible and just experience something totally different. So moved to San Francisco right after um, graduation, where I was for nine years, um, started my career at Intel in the finance department, um, went on and got my MBA, um, and then started a venture fund in the healthcare technology space, which I ran for many years. Um, and then went, actually joined faculty at Columbia Business School, where I taught um, a course on healthcare um, startup investing. And then last year started um, a new company in the healthcare space. So kind of getting back into the founder seat, really my first time being a founder of a company, founding a, founding a fund is very different from a company, um, but then working on a kind of consumer goods company in the women's health space called Natalist. So, and I'm really excited to chat with all of you guys and hopefully answer all your questions. Perfect. Okay. So I guess my first kind of question, I want to start by talking about you and Rock Health. I think it'll be beneficial to the students here talking about just how you came out of university and getting involved with that. So could you talk to how you kind of got involved starting Rock Health um, or what got you interested in that? Yeah. So when I was in business school, I um, had the opportunity to intern at Apple, where I covered the healthcare segment for the App Store. So this was 2010, and the App Store <clears throat> at Apple was um, you know, only two years old at the point. I think it was turning two years old, so it was still re relatively nascent platform. And the healthcare segment had no one on it. So really, the, the biggest apps, the most successful apps were around gaming and 
Um, and so the healthcare uh, segment was like really kind of a snooze. So they put this, you know, 25 year old intern on, um, on that segment. And I sat next to the woman who covered the gaming segment, who I'm still friends with today. She's actually a, uh, an advisor for me at my new company. Um, but really was so jealous of the entrepreneurs that were coming in and showing her these really awesome gaming apps that were really leveraging all the native um, features of the iPhone and really just like next level innovation. And then in like the healthcare segment, I was just seeing really um, uninspiring products. Um, and I thought, look, like the healthcare industry is like 20 times the size of the gaming industry, yet the sort of apps that we're seeing really aren't um, inspiring in any way. And so I, um, and I, I, when I was at Case, I interned at the Cleveland Clinic, um, was very interested in kind of health and wellness. I then interned at Columbia um, University and the, the medical school there between my junior and senior year. So I kind of had an interest in health and business. And so I, um, when I went back to school, I did an independent study to kind of really understand why aren't we seeing a lot of innovation in the healthcare technology space? Like why do all these healthcare apps suck? Um, and <laughs> built a, um, you know, created a case for building, do you guys know what Y Combinator is? Can you, yes. is everybody, I can't see everyone. So is everybody shaking their heads? Okay. So basically to build the H Combinator, the health Combinator, um, was my, like one of my projects and, um, I didn't get great grades in business school. I will admit that. Um, but I got like, you know, an equivalent of an A on this project. Um, and I worked with a long time, one of our professors who was a longtime healthcare investor and, um, decided that, you know, there was, there was definitely something there. And I went and I, I pitched some big companies, the Mayo Clinic, Nike, Kaiser Permanente. Um, I was still a student and I pitched them this idea that like, Hey, let's bring together really great software entrepreneurs with the incumbent like healthcare system, let's all sit around the table and come up with these solutions together. And so we were able to raise enough money for the initial fund for Rock Health um, that, you know, we opened the lease. I was like five weeks from graduation. I was like out in San Francisco, kind of getting everything together while like finishing school um, and was able to basically create, you know, this, this new fund from, from scratch, from the schoolwork that I did essentially. Um, and so you know, that was a really great experience. Ran that for like five or six years. I'm still very involved. Um, but when I moved to the East Coast, um, handed the reins over to a really great CEO who um, was actually one of our partners at Genentech and has been in the space for a long time, um, was a computer scientist and a healthcare geek. So kind of the perfect combination. But really our goal um, at Rock Health was kind of to, to bring these two worlds together. So like cutting edge technology and software with healthcare. Um, and so it's been a, you know, been a passion of mine my entire career. I actually, um, started working on my MPH about two years ago. So I'm also doing a part-time program right now with Johns Hopkins and we'll wrap up later this year. Um, but really interested in how we can create innovations to make our healthcare system better, um, improve patient outcomes, reduce kind of the burden of cost. So it's been a big theme in my career is just health outcomes. Very cool, very cool. Um, if anyone has any questions regarding Rock Health or how she started that, um, I'll definitely take questions now and we can kind of delve more into that. Um, I think Mike will be running a mic around um, if anyone has questions. Uh, if not, um, Hallie, I was wondering how kind of your experience um, starting Rock Health, how did that kind of 
help you in terms of moving into starting Natalist and, and moving further in your entrepreneurship career? Yeah. Well, it's, I, I actually never thought I would start a company. I, I definitely am more wired like an investor than like a, um, a startup founder. Um, I really love investing. I love having kind of a 360 view of what's happening in a market. I like being involved in a lot of companies and I continue to angel invest. Um, you know, not as much, I just don't have as much time now, but it's, it's my husband and I have a fund that we've been investing out of for the last 12 years. Um, and you know, I, I, I enjoy working with other founders. So I never thought I would actually start a company, but what happened was, um, within healthcare, my focus has all been on kind of consumer health. So products that are kind of consumer facing and, um, you know, fertility became interesting to me through my own journey and struggles getting pregnant and was just looking at the market and the opportunities and women's health in general is an area that's totally underfunded and quite behind for many reasons. Many of them you can get. And so, um, I started looking at fertility, knowing my experiences as a patient, um, started looking at different opportunities in the space and I made some investments, but really when I was buying some of these products, um, like, you know, pregnancy tests, um, ovulation tests, I, I was just shocked at how dated these products were. Um, and they really felt more clinical than they needed to be. And they weren't very user-friendly. And so initially I was like, I'm going to find a company doing this and I'm going to fund them. That was my initial goal was like, I have this thesis that, um, you know, there's, there's going to be like a disruption of these, you know, pregnancy, pre-pregnancy and pregnancy products from a millennial friendly brand that are easy to use and look more like beauty products than like medical products. And, um, so I, I looked for companies in the space, no one was doing it. So then I said, well, I'm going to just find a founder, um, who's looking for an idea. I have an idea for you. I have money for you. You have, you know, the, the will to start a company. And so I started doing that and I interviewed, um, two or three people. And, um, the first one was like, you know, not necessarily interested in, um, consumer. So that was kind of, you know, an issue because I really believe in direct to consumer businesses. Um, and then the second and third one were kind of interested, but, um, I, I recognized in just like my interviews and meetings with them that I was very opinionated. Um, generally I'm a very hands-off investor. I'm very supportive and I'm, I like to be helpful, but, um, you know, I trust that the founders know best. And I found myself, um, in these meetings really, um, you know, having very strong opinions. And I, I went home and I was like, you know, if I, if I find one of these founders, if I pick one of these founders, I'm going to drive them crazy as an investor because I'm just so passionate about this. Um, and so I told my husband, I was like, I, I think I have to start this company on my own. And he was like, please don't do this. <laughs> please don't do this. We had a newborn at home. Um, gosh. Yeah. We had, we, he was just a few months old. He's like, this is not a good time. You have it really easy right now. Um, and I just, honestly, I just couldn't get, I, I couldn't scratch the itch. I had to really see this company through. And so I talked to some friends of mine, um, a scientist, um, and a, a OBGYN, and they were both really excited. And so we were like, let's, let's get this going. So that's kind of how I ended up in this seat, which is, um, it's, it is new for me being a CEO of a, of a startup is new for me. <laughs> Okay. Um, I guess my next question would be in starting the new company and not really knowing too much about being a founder and things like that, what did you find difficult or what obstacles did you face in trying to start Natalist? Yeah. Well, um, it actually hasn't been 
it hasn't been that hard for me, which is like, I, I recognize the privilege of saying that, um, a couple of things have been really helpful. One is just, I've seen and worked closely with so many founders that I've just absorbed so much best practices from them. Um, and that has been really critical for me. I, I think the, the shock, uh, of being a CEO of a startup that I was not expecting is, um, I mean, when you're an investor, you are very diversified. So if one company goes under, like you still have, you know, hopefully several other that are doing well. Um, and so it's more like portfolio theory on the stock market. Whereas like now I'm just like totally invested in one company. And so the level of pressure that you feel as a founder for this one company to work out is immense and something that I never truly appreciated. Um, you know, when I meet with my founders and they're all frazzled and, you know, just like on their fifth cup of coffee for the day, I don't think I truly appreciated the, the, you know, the pressure and the, the amount of weight that is on the shoulders of a founder. It is extremely high pressure, especially if you take money from investors, from venture capitalists. Now, if you're going to start like a lifestyle business, open a restaurant, um, you know, something that, I mean, I, th- look, that's really hard too. Um, the minute you're taking someone else's money and you're responsible for their money, I feel like that's really the, the, the big stress. And then venture capitalists just expect a level of growth that is, um, hard for any company to obtain and, uh, puts just a lot of pressure on founding teams. So I think that was like something that I didn't, I didn't really recognize what the founders that I worked with were going through mentally. And you just have to be like very strong. Um, there are days where like, like we had a day last week where we had a product that was supposed to come in and it's been delayed a few weeks and we were all ready for this launch. And, you know, the delay was, you know, a big deal for us. And we had to kind of go back to some of the press and some of the influencers. And it was a very stressful day. I was actually on vacation, um, not vacationing because I was dealing with it. And then like the next day, a celebrity like posted about us on Instagram and, you know, we got all these new followers and it was like, you know, a happy day. So truly is a lot of ups and downs. And a lot of it is being able to manage, um, you know, when you, you, you feel that like failure, um, being able to manage that because there'll be a moment, you know, a few days later where you're on a high from some really good news and achievements. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I can understand. I, I'm wondering, I guess, if you have any advice for an aspiring entrepreneur, what would you say is something that's really important for them to know going into it? Um, so, so many things, so many, so many things, um, you know, make sure that this is what you really want. It's very, very difficult. It's hard work. Make sure it's the right time in your life. Um, I look at my, um, you know, what I face now versus what I faced 10 years ago. And I'm just a much better, more informed founder now. Um, I'm glad that I had many years to learn from others and that I didn't, uh, necessarily rush into starting, um, this before I, I had years of accumulated knowledge and best practices. So if you can learn from others and others failures, um, it's a lot easier than learning from your own. So making sure it's the right time in your life. There are a lot of founders that start right out of school or quit school to start companies like Mark Zuckerberg famously, but, um, you know, that's not necessarily the path for everyone. And you can be a founder in your heart at a larger company, at another startup, you know, you can be a founder in spirit for many years before you actually start your company. And that's okay. 
because you want to make sure that if you have a failed company early, it's much harder to then do that again because you don't have that track record. So if you spend three years out of school starting a company and it fails, and then you're kind of like at square one for getting a job. Whereas if you spent three years working for another startup or a, a large, you know, well-respected company, you at least, you know, have that both that experience and that track record. So making sure the timing is right for you personally, I think is really important. Um, and then just like, you have to be stone clad mentally. Like you really, the, you could not imagine the sort of um, ups and downs that you face as a founder and to be able to um, keep professionalism and positivity and inspiring your entire team during those ups and downs is, is really important. It's really, it's, it's very very difficult. Um, and, you know, I think the other, you know, another consideration just, you know, totally switching gears is you can have a conviction, um, about something, but so often I see founders running solely on their convictions and not testing things out enough and not listening to signs. Um, and so just bring a lot of humility to, uh, the table and admit when you don't know something and view every, uh, everything you do as an experiment um, versus thinking that, you know, you know, you have to be agile. So you have to kind of come to the table with a, a, a big open mind to learn as much as possible, get as much feedback, ideally feedback from customers. Um, that's the best kind of feedback. And that's the best kind of money to raise is from your customers, not investors. Um, so just kind of keeping that, that mindset alive as you get started. Okay. Um, and kind of going along that, uh, what do you think in your experience throughout your entire process, was there one thing you did or a person you met that really impacted kind of how starting the company went or um, something that you would recommend every person starting um, uh, a company to do that you thought was really helpful for you? I, I mean, absolutely having a strong network in the space that you're working in is so critical. And for me, I was able to gain that network um, in business school, in, you know, in the field, living in San Francisco, um, you know, conferences. So, you know, I'm able to, um, you know, we have some exciting like retail partners that we're launching with this year. And, you know, I was only able to do that through a, a network cold calling, you know, a t- target isn't going to really get you anywhere. You really have to have, um, a network. And so, I would say definitely make sure you're spending the the time. Um, and it's, it's interesting because a lot of the network, um, I will say this, like my, as an investor, my best deal ever was one that closed recently in a case alum, him and I took Baffy 355 together. Um, and we were in the same group, Stan Garber. And, um, you know, I, I kept that relationship going for years and I backed his last company and it was the most successful company I've ever invested in by far. Um, so, you know, making sure that you're, you're treating the, you guys are partying together probably, but make sure that you're also supporting each other's ideas and career paths, because these are the people that, um, you know, you'll, you'll be in touch with for the rest of your career and you're not bigger and bigger. You'll not only have your undergraduate network, but your first job, all the people that you meet at your first job, um, I still, you know, am in touch with a lot of people from all of my, you know, past jobs and internships. And I think that's something that is, you know, it, it sucks getting old. Um, <laughs> it's no fun, but I will say like, you know, it, it's, it's great to be able to look back and have a, a really strong network of people that you can support and that support you. Yeah. 
Yeah, of course. Um, so now I guess I, I'm going to stop um, asking questions and see if anyone in the audience has questions to ask. I'm sure people do. Um, OK. Just introduce yourself, please, um, and look at Shana. Yeah. Hello. Um, my name is. Stand up, actually, if you don't mind. Yeah. Sure. Hello. My name is Carlin Jackson, a uh, master's finance grad and computer science grad of uh, this university. I'm currently working on a uh, couple startups of my own. My question to you is, uh, as someone who's running a consumer-focused uh, business, uh, do you directly or do you have someone on your team who um, deals with how global economics or the political environment might affect your um, strategies, whatever they may be for your business? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're dealing with that right now. One of our um, packaging manufacturers, a paper manufacturer, is based in China. And, um, you know, we haven't heard from them and I actually have an au pair who lives with me, who's Chinese. And so from her, I'm hearing a lot about, um, how, you know, everything's on lockdown, obviously it's all over the news. Um, so we are definitely facing this right now. Um, actively we don't have anyone, we're, we're being more reactive than proactive about it. I have to admit. Um, but when you're starting a CBG company, when you really, your, your supply chain is global. Um, that's the nature of any of these businesses today. And so, um, it, we, we probably need to spend more time thinking about kind of the geopolitical environment. I think also though, I mean, just, um, domestically thinking about how tariffs have impacted us and have kind of changed, um, you know, the nature of, of where we're sourcing our products from, um, and, you know, also selling internationally. We're obviously, we have, we're just early here in the U S we're not thinking globally yet, but it's certainly on my mind and how that will impact our business. Um, so yeah, I think it's something that we need to probably spend more time on, but we're already seeing effects of, um, what's happening elsewhere on our business. It's a great question. <clears throat> Hi, thanks for being here. I'm Sasong. I'm a senior studying human computer interaction and business management. And my question to you, um, is just asking more about, um, your role as a CEO and setting the pace and the goals for your company. How often do you review, like on a personal level, what you want to accomplish within your role? And then on a larger level, what you want analysts to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, we're, we're still a young company. We're just over a year old. And right now we're really looking at goals on a quarterly basis. Um, we had last year just, um, you know, we were just getting to market. We were kind of doing all of our product development. And so our goal was really um, to launch, but we had like just a long list of goals that were, uh, it was like too much. And so this year, what we opted to do is like really focus on what are, um, what are kind of the core things we need to, to get right in order to win and prioritize those things versus having a long list of random goals that might not be tied to every company's, um, you know, goal, which is cash, cash is king. Um, so how are we going to make a lot of money? And so when we think about it, we're like, all right, what are the levers that we can pull for revenue? Well, we can, uh, you know, grow the pie, like have more people see our products. So how are we going to do that? We're going to go to retail. We're going to invest more in marketing, um, you know, social media, et cetera, just increase the amount of people that find us. Um, and then the other lever that we can pull is have more things for them to buy. So right now we have six or seven products. How can we expand that so that we increase our lifetime value of a customer? So right now, you know, our lifetime value is a little north of a hundred dollars. How can we offer even more support and more products so that we're, you know, supporting them for longer throughout their pregnancy, post-pregnancy, um, which is both good for us and our business and good for our customers. Um, so everything right now we're focusing on are those two things is like 
you know, increasing the amount of people that learn about us and then increasing the amount of products that they're able to buy. Those are like our key focuses. And so we're doing that on a, on a quarterly basis, but we do look at sales. I mean, I look at sales literally every minute of the day. Um, we, we just launched on Amazon, um, a few weeks ago, we've been just selling through our website. So this is the first time that we're now available somewhere else other than our website. Um, and yeah, I mean, I literally obsessively, the first thing I do when I wake up is like, look at our, um, how many things do we sell overnight? Um, and I'm, that, that's the only thing that matters for our business right now. You can stand up. Sure. Hi, I'm Rebecca. I'm a chemical biological safety specialist at Case. Um, I'm also a part-time grad student in the dual masters for public health and nutrition. Uh, my question revolves around investment and funding. So whenever you are in meetings with venture capitalists and potential investors, have you found that you had to make compromises or changes to your original mission or plan of study? Um, and then how did that affect your business strategy? Um, so I, I haven't, you know, I had a very unusual experience fundraising, um, because I was an investor myself, I had a very strong network of investors I wanted to work with. And I was able to basically handpick exactly who, um, you know, I wanted to work with. I was able to raise $5 million before we were even incorporated. Um, this is highly unusual and I would never have been able to have achieved that had I not spent 10 years previously as an investor myself, co-investing in deals with these people, building these relationships, you know, proving myself in other ways. Um, so I'm not really a good person to answer that question, but I definitely have seen many, many times um, founders um, so focused on just top line growth um, that they create completely unsustainable unit economics that do not scale. I mean, this is seen time and time again in consumer goods. Um, Casper, I'm sure you guys all know the mattress company that is like, you know, supposed to IPO when you kind of take off the sheets, um, you, know, you can kind of see that their business actually doesn't make sense. And they were paying far more per customer than they were making per customer. Very basics um, of, you know, unit economics that are not being achieved because there's such an obsession on top line growth and seeing um, huge uh, increases month over month that companies that have a lot of funding are willing to spend spend more per user than they'll ever make. Um, and that is something that unfortunately um, is a symptom of the expectations of investors in Silicon Valley and wanting to kind of find the next unicorn. Um, so that's, I would say, to answer your question, you know, how have I seen kind of investor expectations and pressure, um, you know, impact a, a company? I think it's just mismanaging the long-term growth. It's kind of like go big or go home is the, um, is how you get pushed when you take venture capital a lot of times. Um, and oftentimes there are companies that could have built very sustainable businesses, albeit in a slower pace, maybe it would have taken them 10 years to get to a certain revenue level, but they would have done so in a way that creates a sustainable business that doesn't you know, go down in flames. Hi, thank you for uh, taking time with us today. Joe Jankowski here with Thinkbox and the University Chief Innovation Officer and Proud Weatherhead grad. Um, you touched on the passion you had for this new enterprise and how it even led you to realize that you had to run it yourself. Once you started to run it, has that affected how you hire people and will it affect your ability or willingness to exit? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So we, you know, I think passion is passion for uh, the subject matter in which you are working in is so essential because again, if 
when the tough gets going, um, you know, if you, you have to survive off passion and a, a love for the mission. Um, and so, you know, whatever company anyone in the room starts one day, like make sure that you're so obsessed with um, the industry that you're in, the solution that you're trying out, because um, that's really what keeps founders going. And I can't imagine feeling passionate for me about like, I don't know, like a battery company wouldn't, wouldn't do it for me. And when stuff gets going, it'd be too easy to say, I'm out, I'm going to go back to Apple. Um, so, you know, make sure that you find something that you personally are really passionate about. And I, I do that in hiring. We have um, seven or eight employees now. And um, most of our employees are um, our moms themselves who have kind of gone through the trying to conceive process. And now, you know, getting pregnant and then becoming moms. Um, we have uh, only two people on our team that aren't moms. Um, and, and so it, it definitely has been beneficial for us because we bring that empathy for the consumer. And it's something that, you know, when I look at our competitors, like first response, um, which is the largest pregnancy test maker, just the messaging and the branding is so out of touch with the end consumer, that that's really how we're betting that we can differentiate by having a, a a more personal touch, more customer service layer around it. Um, speaking in a voice that really, you know, helps them like on the inside of our box, when you open up the pregnancy test, that says we're crossing our fingers for you, your direct message to the consumer from us as a team. Um, so we, you know, I don't think that, um, I don't think that someone who wasn't passionate about the space would, would do well here. Um, and I don't, you know, I think we would probably be able to see through that. It definitely helps that everybody's super passionate about um, working in this industry. Just one sec, we'll do you in a second. We got one from Facebook Live. So Jim Burke asked, Hallie, you mentioned the value in learning from other founders. What advice do you have for finding and connecting with other founders? Um, well, I think one thing is connecting with them before they become founders. Um, you know, I, like Stan, for instance, who was a classmate of mine and um, we were in study groups together and whatnot. Most of the, most of the startups that I've invested in, most of the founders that I've invested in, I knew them before they had actually started their company. So I would say they, people have more time before they start a company. So if you can build that relationship uh, beforehand, it'll be easier to get a coffee with them because founders every day you're making trade-offs on what you can do and where you can spend your time. And so when someone asks me for a coffee, I'm generally like, I, I literally just don't have capacity for this. And, and I'm so heads down focused right now. Um, so that would be my best advice for, um, for how to connect with other founders is like build those relationships early before they start their companies. Um, and then, you know, continue to grow them. You know, I've, I've, I haven't really gone to many founder events since starting, um, Natalist, but I, I do know that there are wonderful communities. I'm in a few Slack groups. I'm in a few Facebook groups, um, for founders that I've found really valuable. They're not the high touch. Um, but sometimes it's really nice to be able to just ask a question like, Hey, like what type of insurance did you get? Like how much, you know, how much general liability insurance did you get? Those sort of questions. You can join online groups and they've been super helpful for me. Hi, Ali. My name is Alvin. Um, I was okay. Face. Okay. Um, and I was wondering if you ever thought about expanding your industry into cryopreservation where you can have a retail front because it seems that that's a booming business in New York as well. Yeah. 
Um, no, but I've, I've invested in, um, I have a fertility clinic company called kind body that I've invested in. Um, you know, I, I, I think our, our core competency at Natalist, um, is around physical goods and brand. Um, and I think cryopreservation will be, isn't necessarily direct to consumer. It's usually through a clinic, through a, a physician, cause you have to have a physician that takes the sample. Um, so probably not, we probably won't go that direction, but not because I don't think it's an interesting business more because I think it would be a distraction to our core competencies. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm Harry. I'm a second year in electrical engineering and computer science. Um, and I'm part of an effort right now to build an undergraduate entrepreneurship club. And I'm excited about entrepreneurship. And there's a group around me that is also excited. And I'm wondering, what do you think are the most important elements to share with uh, members of the larger community about entrepreneurship to get them excited? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I feel like like being an entrepreneur is this like, you know, cool, like badge of honor. Like you get to be a founder. It's thought of as, you know, a, a like an exclusive club. Um, so kind of ironic that you're creating a club around it. Um, but as I said earlier, I think, um, you know, being someone who is entrepreneurial versus starting a company for the sake of being an entrepreneur are two different things. And I would do a ton of soul searching um, around timing because, you know, you could, you, you really could set yourself in the wrong path by starting something too soon before you're ready. Um, and you could, you know, on the other hand, you could really make sure that your timing is right and that you've built the sort of networking and connections and expertise before starting a company. So just making sure that, you know, I think being entrepreneurial and being an entrepreneur does not necessarily mean starting a company right now. It could be, you know, down the road um, and keeping that mindset alive in the group because, a lot of large companies are looking for entrepreneurial people to um, launch new products, to open new divisions. There are ways to, I mean, what Michael's doing here at Case is very entrepreneurial. Um, you know, a lot of his ideas that he's investing in to expand the school, he's not necessarily, you know, running his own company, but he's being an entrepreneur at Case. Um, and so making sure that like, when you say being entrepreneurial is different from being an entrepreneur and you don't have to start a company right now to be included in this like exclusive club. Hi, I'm Emily. I'm a senior mechanical and aerospace engineering major here. Um, I was part of the entrepreneurship track here back in the fall with Michael and some other students, um, during which we spoke with a lot of different um, crew alumni um, who are working at various startups and companies. And we spent a lot of time asking, trying to develop our own value propositions, as well as asking companies and people about their value propositions. So I was wondering, what's your value proposition for your current company, and how'd you go about developing it um, to make a strong pitch? Yeah. Um, so that's a great question. I thought you were going saying your own value proposition for your, for like your life, which is, um, which is something that everybody should do for sure. Uh, so at Natalist, our value proposition is to really replace the outdated out of touch products that, um, in the women's health category that have traditionally had no brand affinity, no loyalty, but have benefited by being medical devices that don't have a lot of competition. Um, and so we're taking an approach where we're combining, you know, medical grade FDA approved class two medical devices like pregnancy tests, um, ovulation tests, uh, but bringing in designers that have built, you know, spent years and years making beauty products 
so that when people are using these over-the-counter medical devices, um, you know, they feel, they feel, they feel good about themselves. They feel good about their journey, um, and that they enjoy using those products. Um, and that's who we're really going, that's the market we're really going after. We're really trying to create a more consumer friendly, um, you know, women's health aisle, uh, that doesn't exist today. Thank you for sharing some time with us today. Uh, my name is Elizabeth Akimbi. I am a graduate student in the School of Medicine doing um, biomedical research, particularly brain cancer research. Um, and I'm curious about getting into entrepreneurship. Um, you mentioned that as an investor, you learned a lot from founders about best practices. Could you share a few more best practices with us? Mm, yeah. So, I mean, there's endless amounts. Um, um, well, I've said over and over, like, make sure it's the right, the right time for you that you're, you know, going, that you are most prepared to make the biggest impact possible and that there's not anything else that you need to accomplish before starting your company. Um, because it's okay to say, I need to finish that PhD so that I'm the world's leading expert in this space, or I need to work for another founder just to kind of see the inner workings of a startup so that I can, um, you know, make the best decisions as possible. Um, so number one, like first and foremost, make sure that the timing is right for you and that you are best prepared to succeed. Um, and then, you know, a lot of what investors look at, and if you're starting a company that needs to be venture backed, a lot of it's, it's, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, really studying the market and showing that the market, the total addressable market is large enough that it's, um, that there's a big opportunity for you there really understanding the competitors and what they're currently doing and what they might do in response to, um, the product that you bring to the world. I think about that all the time. I think about, well, first response has tons of money. They could just redesign their products. Like how do we create our moat, um, to ensure that, you know, we're not only performing today, but performing tomorrow because your competitors will change and will react to what you're doing. Um, so really doing an analysis around, um, you know, the actual market, is it big enough? And like, what are the dynamics and how can I sustain in dynamics that might change? And you don't know how they would change, but you kind of think through different scenarios. Um, and then team, I mean, it's so critical to work with people, um, that complement your skill set that you can wholeheartedly trust and that, you know, really well, I've seen too many founders that, um, you know, start a company after, you know, not working with someone in the past. Um, uh, maybe, you know, you know, them, peripherally, but have never, you know, had a few coffee meetings. But when it comes down to it, uh, when you found a company and co-found a company with someone, it's like getting married. I mean, it is the very, you're spending a ton of time with this person um, or these people and ensuring that you've kind of stress tested it before you start a company because founder breakups can absolutely destroy companies. Um, and I've seen it destroy companies. I've seen it destroy relationships. And so it's ideal if you've worked with that person before and you know that you're um, compatible in the workplace and that you have complementary skill sets. Um, and then, you know, really thinking about your approach to the solution. I've seen people, you know, over, overbuild things that are not necessary. There are a lot of theories to kind of how to test out, um, you know, apps and products early on. It's a little bit harder in some areas. You mentioned um, working in brain cancer finding solutions there. You can't really test them out um, when they're early prototypes, but and other, you know, building an app and prototyping an app is very easy. So depending on what you're thinking about building, de-risking as early as possible is um, going to save you a lot of time and money. 
Um, again, that's a lot harder to do in healthcare, um, especially if you have to get go through FDA approvals and all of that, which we've you know gone gone through that. It's not easy. Um, so I would say really thinking about the team, the product, and the market are kind of the big areas that I would obsess over. So I have a question from uh, Facebook Live. Uh, Carrie Zimmerman asked, "How do you feel about the label female founder?" Many female entrepreneurs embrace the label, but some also seem to want to deflect attention away from being female and focus more of the attention toward their performance or business successes. What's your opinion on this? Um, I don't know if I have a very strong opinion. I, when I was starting Rock Health, I will admit that I probably got a disproportionate amount of attention because I was a young woman. Um, in a space that was largely older men. Um, and I use that to my advantage. I'll admit that, um, you know, press was great. And I don't know if, you know, all of the press was deserved, but it was definitely, um, newsworthy because I was like this young woman, you know, working with these big brands like Mayo and it was, um, you know, it, it was newsworthy to them. So, um, you know, and at times I felt insecure about it because I, I felt like, um, you know, I had imposter syndrome for sure early on in my career. If you guys don't know imposter syndrome, you know, look it up. It's something that, um, a lot of the young women and men in the room may, may feel now or in the future. And it's something to kind of understand when you're going through those feelings. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't, I'm not offended by being, you know, labeled a, a woman founder or a female founder. Um, I, if you look at the numbers, women have been largely underrepresented when it comes to getting funding, um, when it comes to being CEOs of startups and large Fortune 500s alike. And so I'm just excited to kind of see dialogue around how we can actually make systemic change to make the playing field more equal for women um, and minority founders and leaders in business because we have um, you know, real underlying problems that ha- that lead to bias and um, are, you know, put everyone at a disadvantage. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I've, I'm offended by the term. No. Um, do I love it? I mean, it's fine if it gets my business into the press. <laughs> it's a good thing. Um, so I hope that answered the question. <clears throat> yeah. Um, just um, thank you, honestly, for um responding to that question the way you did. I think um, it's a great privilege for me to just be able to interview you, um, a woman in a healthcare field, that um, it's nice to see someone like you there that I know that I can you know, make it there one day. Um, but just to kind of finish up, I had one last question for you. A lot of times when we talk about entrepreneurship, we talk about kind of being in the right place at the right time and how much that kind of uh, contributes to your success. And so my question to you would be, throughout your entire um, career, Rock Health, being um, very successful as well as um, going into Natalist, how much of that did you feel was kind of that bit of luck going in, being there at the right place, right time, and how much of that was you know, just time spent and pure hard work? Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't call it luck. I think that there is a level of foresight that you can see in, um, in, a, in a market um, changes that you can anticipate that, you know, you've, you've made a hypothesis and you were right. So it's not necessarily luck. It's, you know, a lot of thought that goes into it. Um, and I, and I've 
you know, I was right with Rock Health. I was, you know, I, I saw very early on that there was a need to really bring um, better software engineers into the healthcare space and bring everybody together to work together. And that was um, a trend that I was early on. We were early on at Rock Health and we absolutely benefited from being early and really coining the term digital health and helping promote that, um, you know, sub industry within healthcare. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you guys are all experts in different areas. I would say, you know, it's something that also you see in the stock market. I don't know if anybody is, um, you know, we have any day traders in the room or anything, but it's something, you know, I invest in companies on the stock market as well. When I, I, I tell the story about restoration hardware, which is a overpriced furniture store. When I was moving, I bought a bunch of their stuff and I was like, man, this company's onto something. I'm going to buy some shares. I think I bought them at like $30. I literally bought like three shares. Um, I should have bought more, but you know, bought them at, uh, you know, $30 a few years ago. And I was just looking, I use Robinhood app to just buy stocks of companies I'm interested in. And it was like North of 150. Um, so that same sort of like intuition, like you all have intuition about different things, whether it's through what you're learning at school, um, what you're reading in the news, you can, you kind of anticipate, see the future, um, as it, as you know, as they say, and sometimes you're wrong and sometimes you're right. Um, but you know, get, get good at predicting the future. And I think that really means by becoming a subject matter expert in, in some area. And that's, that's probably the, the most important thing, um, that you do in school is, um, you know, become an expert at something, become a thought leader, um, just really try to add value in, in one area versus spreading yourself too thin. Thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure having you. It was amazing talking to you. And I'm sure a lot of people got their questions answered. Um, but I think we're yeah, coming to the end well. here. Yeah, great. I just want to, um, well, Sonia, thank you so much for, for moderating. It's so awesome. Your own entrepreneurial journey and the work you're doing. And Hallie, thank you. This was great when I thought about kind of when we were starting this series. Um, it's funny, with, with the multiple ways that we can reach one another, I was like, texting Hallie, I Facebook messengered, I emailed, I found her, I tracked her down. So I couldn't think of anybody better to be our, um, one of our first speakers. And I really appreciate all you do for students like Sonia, both when you're in San Francisco and on the coast, it really means a lot to our alums to be able to have somebody to reach out to. And you've taken a real interest in our students and their careers. And um, yeah, we do look forward to having you back on campus next time you're back in Cleveland. 